0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we take a look at why Luddite should never have become the epithet that it is, as Luddites were never afraid of or opposed to technological advancement. They only opposed the exploitation of workers and the degradation to society that came with the unfair distribution of the benefits of the targeted technology, which is echoed in the debate over AI. And its impact on the future of work today. Sources today include Shift, Left Reckoning, TRT World, J Stubes on TikTok, Factually, Torres, and The Majority Report, with additional members only clips from Factually and Alice Capel.
1: The Luddites were a band of rebels, basically, cloth workers in the beginning stages of the Industrial Revolution, who, after trying various peaceful measures for a long, long time to make sure that their working lives and their identities and their trades were were protected from the march of what we would refer to today as automation, found themselves with their backs against the walls tech companies of the day, entrepreneurs of the day, were using machines that automated work that sort of did their jobs worse, shoddier, and more cheaply, changed course. And they started fighting and they started doing the thing that would come to define them, that smashing the machines that were taking their jobs. They organized around this fictitious, apocryphal sort of figure, Ned Ludd, who was probably just completely made up or may have been uh, an apprentice cloth worker who wasn't working as fast as his master wanted him to. So he his master had him whipped and he enraged, took a giant hammer and smashed the machine that uh, he had been working on, fled into Sherwood Forest like Robin Hood before him. They were both in Nottingham and Nottinghamshire and sort of the legend grew, right? He's Ned Ludd. So the people who followed in his footsteps, smashing the machinery of oppression were the Luddites. And they organized themselves into a big guerrilla force that could oppose sort of the forces of industrialization, the elites, and and sort of the British crown all at once.
2: The word basically has had a negative connotation ever since. But you wrote an interesting piece for The Atlantic. The term is suddenly in vogue.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's being reclaimed by people who are increasingly kind of turning to this history As a little bit of a a, 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 of a contextualizing source, because a lot of the things that happened 200 years ago, you know, the Luddites rose up in 1811, so about you know 210 years ago or so, the conditions are very similar in a lot of ways to what's happening today with AI and sort of gig work, where big companies, powerful people, and rich people with a lot of access to resources are using technologies in a certain way. They're adopting AI in ways that might threaten. Writers, artists, ordinary workers, the gig app companies are turning to, you know, industries that had been organized a certain way for a long time and basically saying we can do this with a, you know, peer to peer platform now where we take a cut of it, but also sort of cut out the part where, you know, you get benefits and it started with Uber and it started with Lyft. And now it's sort of this gig work model is moving on to bigger sectors of the economy like healthcare and so forth. And all the while, workers are feeling like it's pushing them into more precarious situations. So a lot of people are recognizing these forces and the similarities to the original Luddites. And they're saying, hey, you know, the Luddites were not dummies. The Luddites, in fact, use technology in their lives every day for hundreds of years. You know, if you're a cloth worker, if you're a you know a weaver using a hand loom in a cottage or if you're a stocking frame worker, Using it to knit goods, or if you're, you know, working a cloth finishing device, a gig mill, all of these things were technologies that they had really firsthand knowledge of how to use, and they were opposing these changes not because they hated the technology, but because they hated how it was being used against them. And so we find ourselves in a similar situation today, where artists are saying, "Hey, wait a minute!" And I've talked to many of them in my work as a as a journalist. Who are seeing, you know, up to 50% of their work sort of dry up because they used to draw illustrations for a company that can now do that with Mid-Journey or a copywriter that used to work for a for a corporation. Now they can, you know, use Chat GPT to get some approximation of it. And so these sort of precarious, already precarious jobs are kind of drying up a little bit in a way that is very contested because uh, there's just like the cloth workers 200 years ago who complained about the quality and the methods of their work being stolen by the machines and all the, all the labor that they'd put into building a reputation and, and so forth of, of England's cloth industry, the machine owners were, were capitalizing on that, automating large parts of it, using children to run the machines for, for less cost, and then putting out an inferior product. While artists today say, hey, all of this stuff has been stolen from work we've put on the Internet. It's been vacuumed up into these systems that a tech company is going to profit off of to churn out an inferior product. And it's going to not only deprive us of a chance to make a you know, living selling our work, but it's also going to drive the market down in general for, for the prices for this stuff. Because now we're competing with an automated system. So. The similarities are so numerous and the Luddites, I think, are increasingly seen as sympathetic and not reactionary or dumb because really that mischaracterization is the result of a propaganda campaign. So kind of put it bluntly by the crown at the time that really had an interest in, you know, the Luddites at, when they first rose up were really popular. People would join them in the streets, people from other trades who weren't an obvious threat of being automated away I- in their workplaces. The steel workers, the coal workers, people, the shoemakers, Hatter, they would all come out and they'd join the Luddites. And even some of the authorities at the time would just kind of let them attack the shops. Part of that is because the Luddites were very tactical. And at first, especially, they would only destroy the machines that were automating their work. They would leave all the other machinery that didn't sort of disrupt the social contract in place. And they would sort of write threatening letters explaining why they were doing what they were doing. They'd give pe- the the factory owners an opportunity to take down the automating machines and they would be blunt. They said, you have erased, you know, 300 of our brother's jobs and take down the machines or you'll get a visit from Ned Ludd. That's how they would, you know, write their their letters and, their, and go about their campaign. And if they complied, Ned Ludd's army wouldn't show up. But if they didn't, if they kept the machines up, then they'd either sneak through the window or hold up the overseer at gunpoint. And they'd take that hammer to those to those machines. And it was twofold. It was, it was a symbolic tactic, right? Saying like, this is, these are the machines being used by the rich to get even richer. If we destroy them, we're also sort of dealing a blow to these forces that are making society more unequal, less just. And so people could get behind that. They were also very tactical, right? You destroy the machine that can, you know, do the work that has caused you to lose a job. Economies were much less complex. We didn't have globalization to the same degree. It was your town was probably a cloth producing town. If you were in the Luddite sort of sphere of influence, if you smash the machine in the factory that's doing your job, then they can't use it to take your job anymore. So it it served both purposes and they were really popular. So people were cheering for them. So the state had to kind of come in and say, look at these people. They're destroying their own industry. They're dummies. They're against progress. They're fighting against just technology and advancement in general. They're deluded. That was the favorite word. They were deluded. And they would always suggest that they were under the influence of some malcontented leader because common people at the time couldn't be trusted to, you know, act on their own accord or to understand what was bad for them.
3: Luddism was a glorious moment of solidarity and collective action by workers. I think they, uh, the reason that, um, you know, on TMK, Ed and I are really trying to bring back Luddism is because we think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of how we think of tech criticism, you know, going back to mm-hmm. the beginning of our conversation is understanding tech criticism as something that is fundamentally adversarial, something that should be dangerous to the interest of capital, um, to the material conditions of capital while raising up the material conditions of workers. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, understanding that the reason why the 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 good name of Ned Ludd has been dragged through the mud is uh, because uh, because of the capitalist really mm-hmm. you know saying that this is this is actually threatening to us. We need to do every we need to assassinate the character of this. They actually. This was one of the first instances of capital um uh, uh, asking the state to bring in the army to suppress workers was the luddite uh, you know uprising um and they did they the army came in and killed um so-called Luddites and made luddism a uh, a treasonous act because it was so threatening to the interest of capital
4: it, it it's a lesson about. Activism too, because there's this way that activism is defined. You either have non-violence or you have terrorism, and sabotage is something different. I mean, I like between those two, and it's I think, v- v- I mean, very threatening to the interests mm-hmm. of capital. So it's, we shouldn't be surprised at this uh, reaction to uh, uh, LUD.
3: I could go off on this and, go and off, the linkages go off. to sabotage, um, because I, I think you'll know, fast forward a um, hundred years later from the Luddites and you've got the uh, the IWW, right? The International Workers of the World. And you've got people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn um, mm-hmm. writing a brilliant pamphlet in defense of sabotage, right? Um, saying that, this, that, that like the strike, sabotage is a necessary tool in the workers' arsenal against capital. Um, like the strike, we should not... Uh, moralize about sabotage. We should not uh, look down upon or question the motivations of workers who engage in sabotage, but instead understand why they do what they do and how we might support what they do. Right? Mm. Uh, and 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 that is in the same way. I think what we see of of Ludism is it is really about understanding and and asking really critical questions does this technology contribute to social welfare does it mm. contribute to socially beneficial ends you know i've i've called it like uh the marie Kondo of technopolitics, right you hold up this technology you ask those <laughs> questions and if the answer is no then you throw it in the trash right um and and we need to have a, we need to get more comfortable With understanding technology as something that is not only political, not only human-made, but as something that therefore can be unmade, can be deconstructed and dismantled Mm -hmm. by people for... For, for, for good ends, right? Just because something exists doesn't mean it deserves to exist. And I think that's a myth of determinism that we are sold, um, is that all we need is innovation, more stuff on top of more stuff on top of more stuff. I think we need to start asking more questions about why we have this stuff and if it deserves to exist.
4: I think that's, that's on point. And it's like, you know, a lot of the way that it's like Luddism is properly understood are people who have like severe fears of technology or people who don't understand technology. Uh, when in fact, uh, the picture that you're painting right here is people who very, very much understand technology and what it's doing to them and doing to their community. Um, and it's something that should be replicated, uh, you know, much more because, especially if you read tech journalism, Uh, I know there's a lot of great folks out there who do good tech journalism, but a lot of it, um, you know, is just, as you were saying earlier, you know, repeating press releases, acting as if these things are, you know, have no effect on like on our material reality, but are just expressions of us uncovering the truth of, of, of the being, right. The truth of the world, right. Uncovering the, you know, the tech, um, you know, that is just always out there instead of a very specific, Of A very specific process that is bringing about a a particular end. Um, And I I think it's important for us to understand, not just as like workers, right, Um, but also in politics, because one thing that was so frustrating, for example, is like, you know, Andrew Yang's uh, campaign in, in, in 2020, right? The way that he talked about uh, unemployment, right? It was like, well, this is just the consequence of like the wheels of history moving in a certain way because technology and, and robots and artificial intelligence are just reaching a point and there's nothing we can do to stop it, but we'll just, you know, put a bandaid on the bottom, right? It was very attractive to some people, especially like working people were attracted to it because they're seeing, oh, my job. Is becoming more automated. There is more surveillance than I've ever experienced, Um, and it's a great tool for you know for the wealthy and and people like Bezos to say like, yeah, well, this is just the natural order of things, rather than people having to understand. It's like, no. Um, The technology is being developed in a certain way uh, because you have been historically put onto this, you know, lower rung, um, like the working class in this country has been, you know, devastated, you know, for decades and decades and decades. So technology is being used to, to brutalize you and to, to turn you more and more into a machine. Um, You know, again, these, like these, these things are not just coming out of nowhere.
3: A lot of the coverage around like Amazon um over the last, you know, year or so, right? Uh I think also really shows that, you know, the the conditions that the Luddites were originally reacting against sounds a whole lot like an Amazon warehouse, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, you know, it, it's the fact that these things um these things in capitalism continue to replay themselves these same relationships continue to replay themselves but in ways that just are ever intensifying and i think that the reaction to them also demands a, a, an equal and opposite reaction right one that is increasingly intensifying to meet uh, mm-hmm. to meet capital where it is trying to to meet us
5: You're sounding the alarm. Jeffrey Hinton, seen as the founder or father or godfather of AI, he's sounding the alarm and has distanced himself from a lot of his previous statements. Others in the mainstream are coming out, heavily credentialed people who are the real deal when it comes to AI. AI are saying, we need guardrails, we need regulation, we need to be careful, maybe we should stop everything. Yet... OpenAI, Microsoft, DeepMind, these are companies, but then you have governments investing in this. Everybody's still rushing forward, hurtling forward towards a possible doom. Why are they still doing it despite these very legitimate and strong warnings?
6: Is it only about the bottom line and money and competition, or is there more to it? This is a great question. And I really like how you phrased, you said, they were rushing towards, because this is really the correct way of looking at this. It's not that it is not possible to do this well. It is not that it's not possible to build safe AI. I think this is possible. It's just really hard. It takes time. It's the same way that it's much easier to build a nuclear reactor that melts down than to build a nuclear reactor that is stable. Like, of course, this is just hard. So you need time and you need resources to do this. But unfortunately, we're we're in the situation right now, as we're currently in a situation right now where at least here in the UK, there is currently more regulation on selling a sandwich to the public than to develop potentially lethal technology that could kill every human on earth. This is true. This is is the current case. Mm. And a lot of this is because of slowdown. It's just, you know, governments are slow, people don't want, and vested interests. You make a lot of money by pushing AI, pushing AI further makes you a lot of money. It gets you famous on Twitter. You know, look how much the, like these people are rock stars. You know, people like Sam Altman's a rock star mm. on Twitter. You know, people love these people. They're like, oh, yeah, they're bringing the future. They're making big money, so they must be good. But like, I mean, it's just not that simple. Unfortunately, we're in a territory where we all agree somewhere in the future there's a precipice, mm. which we will fall down if we continue. We don't know where it is we don't maybe it's far away maybe it's very close and my opinion is if you don't know where it is you should stop while other people to you know gain money power or just ideological points like a lot of these people is very important to understand do this because they truly believe like a religion right they believe in transhumanism in in the glorious future where ai right. will love us and so on like So there's many reasons, but I mean, yeah, I mean, a cynical take is just, (laughs) I could be making a lot more money right now. If I was just pushing AI, I could get a lot more money than I have right now. How do we (laughs) do anything about this without just deciding to
5: cut the undersea internet cables and blow up the satellites in space and just start again? How do you actually, (laughs) because this is a technical problem and it's also a moral and ethical problem. So Where do you even begin right now, or is it
6: too late? So the weirdest thing about the world to me right now, as someone who's deep into this, is that things are going very, very bad. We have, you know, crazy, you know, just corporations with zero oversight, just plowing billions of dollars into going as fast as possible with no oversight, with no accountability, which is about as bad as it could be. But somehow we haven't yet lost. It's not yet over. It could have been over. There's many things where it could be over tomorrow, but it's not yet. There is still hope. There is still hope. I don't know if there's going to be hope in a couple years or even in one year, but there currently still is hope.
5: Oh, wait, hold on. Hope... One year. I mean, that's... <laughs> Come on, man. I mean... We're probably going to put out this interview like a couple of weeks after we record it. <laughs> a few months will pass. We could all be dead by the time you. I know, this gets 10,000 views. I mean, it just, just for second, explain this timeline. One year. Why one year? Why, why is it going so fast that even one year would be too far ahead?
6: Explain that. I'm not saying one year is like guaranteed by any means. <laughs> I think it's unlu- unlikely, but it's not impossible. And this is important to understand, mm. is that AI and computer technology is an exponential It's like COVID. This is like saying in February, you know, a million COVID infections. That's impossible. That can't happen in six months. And it absolutely did. This is kind of how AI is as well. Exponentials look slow. They look like you don't go one infected, two infected, four infected. That's not so bad. But then you have 10,000, 20,000, 40,000, you know, 100,000, you know, within a single week. And this is how te- this technology works as well, is that as our computers get, there's something called Moore's law, which is it's not really a law, it's more like an observation, that every two years, our computers get about, you know there's some details, but about twice as powerful. So that's an exponential. Mm-hmm. And, our tech, and it's not just our computers are getting more powerful, our software is getting better, our AIs are getting better, our data is getting better, more money is coming into this field, we are on an exponential. This is why things can go so fast. So, while I'm not like, you know, it would be weird if we would all be dead in one year, it is physically possible. Mm. You can't rule it out Mm. if we continue on this path.
5: The powerful people who can do something about this, especially when it comes to regulation, when you saw those congressmen speaking to Sam Altman, they didn't seem to know what the hell they were talking about. So, how frustrating is it for you that the people who can make a difference have zero clue about? what's really going on, and and more important than that, they didn't seem to want to actually know. They had weird questions that made no sense, and uh, so you're thinking, okay, these guys are in charge. I mean, no wonder the AI is gonna come and wipe us all out, maybe maybe we deserve it.
6: Well, I wouldn't go that far, but um, this used to annoy me a lot. This used to be extremely frustrating, um, but I've come to, I've come to peace with it to a large degree. Because the thing that I've really found is that understanding the world is hard. Understanding complex topics and technology is hard, not just because they're they're complicated, but also because people have lives. And this is okay, this is normal. People have families, they have responsibilities, they have, there's a lot of things people have to deal with and I don't shame people for this. You know, like, you know, I have turkey, you know, with my family over Thanksgiving or whatever. And, you know, my aunts and uncles, look, they have their own lives going on. They maybe don't really have time you know to like listen to me give them a rant about it, so I don't. So I have a lot of love and a lot of compassion for that things are hard. This is, of course, doesn't mean it, it, that solves the problem, but I'm just trying to say that, like, it is, of course, frustrating to some degree that there are no adults in the room. This is how I would see it, is that there is sometimes a belief that somewhere there is someone who knows what's going on. There's an adult who's got it all under control. You know, someone in the government, they've got this under control. And as someone who's tried to find that person, I could tell you this person does not exist. (laughs) The truth is, is the fact that anything works at all in the world is kind of a miracle. It's kind of amazing that anything works at all with how chaotic everything is. Mm. But the truth is, is that there are quite a lot of people who like, who want the world to be good. You know, they might Mm. not have the right information, might be confused, They might be getting lobbied by various people with bad intentions. But like most people want their families to live and have a good life. Mm. Most people don't want bad things to happen. Most people want other people to be happy and safe. And luckily for us, most normal people, so not elites, not necessarily politicians or technologists, most normal people do have the right intuition around AI. Where they see like, Wow, that seems really scary. Let's hmm. be careful with this. And this is what gives me hope. So when I think about politicians and them not being in charge, I think this is now our responsibility as citizens of the world that we have to take this under our own hands. We can't wait for people to save us.
7: becoming increasingly convinced that we are headed towards an artistic apocalypse. I know that sounds dramatic, but this technology should scare absolutely everyone. In case you hadn't heard, yesterday OpenAI announced their newest technology. They're calling it Sora. It is a text-to-video engine that allows people to use word prompts to create photorealistic video. Every single video in this thread is 100% AI generated. And it's something that absolutely cannot be stressed enough that every single AI generator that exists is trained off of existing art. It is trained off of art and words and writing that often they don't obtain permission from the original artists before they feed them into their generators to learn how to recreate their work essentially. But before I get into all of the many ways that this is objectively horrifying from a human and artistic standpoint, I want you to think about all of the immediate real world applications of this technology. Think about the way this technology could be used in a surveillance state. Think about the way this technology could be used in a court of law with a potentially corrupt legal system and law enforcement system. This technology absolutely will be used to inflict trauma and humiliation by way of things like AI deepfake porn or anything else that you can think of that is humiliating or degrading. The worst things you can think of that could be used with this technology, I guarantee you will be used with this technology. And the ease of use and accessibility means that children will inevitably have access to this as well. There are a million terrifying applications for this i cannot even imagine how one would protect themselves from scams or identity theft with technology like this of course there'll be rampant political propaganda ai deepfakes something absolutely everyone needs to consider is the way that this technology could be used to discredit the validity of things like genocide that are happening in the world right now I think holocaust deniers are bad now imagine when technology like this is normalized and people can see real footage of human suffering being inflicted by say an authoritarian government and say well who even knows if that's real Or worse, governments using this technology to create artificial evidence of atrocities they claimed happen but have no evidence of. Like, this is absolutely terrifying in terms of the misinformation that is possible. And I personally find it absolutely disgusting that this technology barely exists. It's in its infancy, and the very first application that people want to use it for in this world is to eliminate artists. I've seen so many people say, oh, well, it will never really be able to replace humans. We'll always know the difference. And the thing is, no, we won't. The way that this technology has advanced in a single year is absolutely astounding. Any deficiency you can think of right now that you can say, oh, well, it can't do this thing that a human can do, it will learn way faster than you think it will artists have been underpaid and undervalued since forever and it's only gotten worse with the rise of film as the most prolific art form of the modern age i think film is great but it is inextricably tied to capitalism art and entertainment are kind of indiscernible from one another sometimes because of the world we live in and the fact that film is art but film is also a capitalist endeavor meant to make money art is born out of passion and it inspires passion i just don't understand why that would ever be something that we would want to fucking streamline people don't go into art to become rich and famous i'm sure it's nice when that does happen. But most artists feel a burning need to create. And that comes from needing to connect with people needing to make sense of the cruel and chaotic senselessness of our existence to find meaning in this fucking world. And I'm so sorry, but being good at putting sentences together to throw into a generator that's going to spit art out on the other side is not what that is. This is the thing about automation and the way AI is going to eventually be used in all industries is that it is fundamentally stripping us of our reasons to be alive. Like it, there are studies that show that once people retire, they die earlier work, even busy work, even monotonous bullshit jobs that we hate give us a reason to get out of bed in the morning and and live. And I am all for finding a way to use this technology to improve people's lives, to make it so they have to work less and live more. But that is not the direction that this is going. And the scariest thing about all of this to me, not just as someone who identifies as an artist, not just as someone who really believes that art is one of, if not the most meaningful things you can devote your life to, but just as a human who has existed in this world that has become increasingly more isolated, increasingly more digital, increasingly more performative, is that I look around and I see the average person does not give a fuck about any of this. Because for over a decade now, we've had this condition programming this dopamine hit after dopamine hit this artificial identity that we have to construct for ourselves to perform on the internet all the time is becoming increasingly our real identity and people don't care about the real fucking world all of this is so strategically designed to stimulate the pleasure triggers in our brain to slowly turn us into these perfect docile consumers who don't need real world comforts because we have virtual fun like It's fine that we're all getting poorer and nobody can afford anything because we don't actually need real money to do most of the things we want to do online. Whether or not you believe it's intentional, this is what's happening. We're being stripped of the things that make us human. Our sense of community has crumbled as we become more isolated in this digital space. And now our sense of artistic expression is being replaced by the literal click of a button. It is so dystopian.
8: Please walk us through your other proposals for for regulating AI. So next thing would be global AI governance. I think we need to coordinate what we're doing across the globe, which is actually in the interest of the companies itself. You know, large language models are expensive to train. And you don't want to have 195 countries, 195 sets of rules requiring 195 bits of violence to the um, environment because each of these is so um, expensive and, and so energetically costly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want coordination for that reason. The companies don't really want completely different regimes in, in each place. And ultimately, as things do get more powerful, we want to make sure that all of this stuff is under control. And so I think we need some coordination around that. Next thing I would suggest is something like the FDA if you're going to deploy AI at large scale. So it's one thing if you want to do research in your own lab, but if you're going to roll something out to 100 million people, You should make sure that the benefits actually outweigh the risks. And independent scientists should be part of that. And they should be able to say, well, you've made this application, but there's this risk and you haven't done enough to address it. Or, you know, you've said there's this benefit, but we look at your measures and they're not very solid. Can you go back and do some more? So there should be a little bit of negotiation um, until things are really solid. Another thing we should have is auditing after things come out make sure for example that systems are not being used in biased ways so like are large language models being used to make job decisions and if they are are they discriminating we need to know that but uh
2: now all these regulations sound great to me they sound important having an fda style agency etc uh that that sounds like a great thing to do when you've got uh technology that's causing problems Uh, The history of that sort of regulation in the United States is that when you have a new field, that field desperately resists regulation with every fiber of its being. And it isn't until there are real massive harms, people dying in the streets from tainted food that we get, you know, food regulation and, you know, instituted by Teddy Roosevelt. I told that story on my Netflix show, The G Word. Um, It requires generally like wholesale death and devastation before we start regulating these things. Um, do you feel that there's any prospect in the near term for the kind of regulations that you're talking about? Or are we going to have a
8: lot of harms first? It's difficult to say. I mean, when I gave the Senate testimony, there was actually real strong bipartisan recognition that we do need to move quickly, that government moved too slowly on social media, didn't really get to the right place. And so, there's some recognition that there's a need to do something now, whether that gets us over the hump. I don't know. Part of my thinking is figure it out now what we need to do. And even if it doesn't pass, we'll have it ready. So if there is a sort of nine 11 moment, some massive, you know, AI induced cyber crime or something like that, we'll be there. We'll know what to do. And so I don't think we should waste time right now being defeatist. I think we should figure out what is in the best interest of the nation and really of the globe. and, be as prepared as possible, whether it passes down or later.
2: I agree that we should do as much as possible. I'm just a little bit concerned about the amount of power wielded by the tech industry, you know, that this is one of the most profitable industries in America. So it's very easy for those CEOs to go and get a meeting with Joe Biden, whatever they want. And it's harder for folks such as yourself or or some of the other uh uh, you know, academics we've had on the show to uh, to, to have those conversations. But I agree I, that we I, need I'll, to be having the conversation.
8: I'm in a little bit of a special category, especially after the Senate um, testimony. But right now, it's actually very easy for me to get meetings. I, I met um, – <laughs> well, I, I guess I shouldn't be too explicit. But I, I'm able to talk to whoever I need to talk to in Washington and, um, you know, Europe and, and so forth right now. So um, people in power right now – are recognizing that they don't entirely trust the big tech companies that they do need some outside voices. And for whatever reason, I right now am in that position and they're they're taking me very seriously. Um, if I say I'm going to be in Washington, could you meet next week? People say yes. And in fact, I was just in Washington, met a lot of very high ranking people. And then I got on the airplane and then some other high ranking people are like, when are you coming back? Um, and, and so, um, I think just by coincidence, but, um, you know, People notice the testimony that I gave. Want to solve this problem? Like they're sincere in wanting to solve it. There's a problem that not everybody agrees about what to do, and everybody's trying to take credit for having the the one true solution. And like in some ways, it's an embarrassment of riches. Everybody's trying to help. In some ways, there's a coordination problem. But I would say that more than any time I've ever seen before the government is reaching out to at least some of us who are experts in the field, trying to say, you know, what would you do in this circumstance? So I give them some credit for that.
9: Visions of the future are varied. And for as much as I'd like to believe that the future will be as rosy as these authors do, I find it hard to believe. Take for example the scandalous finding that 40% of jobs will be lost to AI. These findings have been moderated by more measured studies, like a 2016 OECD study that found that less than 10% of jobs were likely to be automated. The study was more robust than the previous one for a variety of reasons, and more importantly, it wasn't funded by the companies that are creating AI technology and want to sell you on it. Seriously, if we were to listen to the CEOs, ChatGPT might as well be digital gold. But even then, 10% is still a lot of jobs. The question of whether AI advancements will lead to job loss is undeniably yes. You won't find one serious person saying otherwise. But there's something we're missing here. Author Aaron Beninov centers his analysis on one primary question Why are we so obsessed with technologically driven job loss? There's a recurring hype surrounding automation theory, one that's been happening since at least the 1800s, but frankly I wouldn't be surprised if we found a manuscript by a caveman afraid that the invention of fire was going to cost him his role as hunter. Beninov argues that the cyclical nature of automation discourse has less to do with technology itself and more to do with the nature of capitalist society. Taking its periodicity into account, automation theory may be described as a spontaneous discourse of capitalist society that, for a mixture of structural and contingent reasons, reappears in those societies time and time again as a way of thinking through their limits. What summons the automation discourse periodically into being is a deep anxiety about the functioning of the labor market. There are simply too few jobs for too many people. Why is the market unable to provide jobs for so many of the workers who need them? Proponents of the automation discourse explain this problem of a low demand for labor in terms of runaway technological change, but this is misguided. In short, there's a fundamental problem in the labor market that's prompting these fears in the first place. As we discussed, a whole lot of jobs people used to do a hundred years ago no longer exist. But this isn't new. Automation is a constant feature in the history of capitalism. What is new, relatively speaking, is that global capitalism is now failing to provide jobs for the people who need them, and those of us who find them are often underemployed, doing jobs we're way too qualified to do, there's higher spikes of unemployment inequality is only getting higher, something has gone wrong. Labor is in short demand. Automation theorists would argue, yeah, no shit. That's because of automation, baby. That's what we've been telling you. Robots took our jobs and they're only going to keep doing it. But Beninov argues we'd be wrong to chalk it up to simple automation, because if you look at the numbers, there's a deep economic rot at the center of this. Let's look at manufacturing, an industry that's already seen automation hit it in a big way. Already cybernetically enhanced, we would expect productivity and output to have skyrocketed, right? But this isn't the case. In fact, recent figures show the manufacturing industry diminishing, growing at a sluggish pace that doesn't compare with the post-World War II Golden Age. It's a classic crisis of overproduction and overcapacity. Demand for goods has stagnated compared to our ability to produce them, leading to a wave of deindustrialization. And manufacturing is only one such industry. Across the board, economic growth has stagnated. Some would argue that this is inevitable, if we're using the economy after World War II as the baseline. The global economy was booming after the war. Expecting it to stay like that, well, it's not a fair comparison. If we instead compare it to pre-World War I levels, things are much more similar. But here's the kicker. As Beninov explains, in that period, large sections of the population still lived in the countryside and produced much of what they needed to live. Yet in spite of the much more limited sphere in which labor markets were active, and in which industrialization took place, this era was marked by a persistently low demand for labor, making for employment insecurity, rising inequality, and tumultuous social movements aimed at transforming economic relations. In this respect, the world of today does look like this era. The difference is that today, a much larger share of the world's population depends on finding work in labor markets in order to live. Considering how you can't just grow food in your backyard like you used to a hundred years ago, this development is unsettling. Beninov admits that technological progress does play a factor here, but it's secondary to the primary issue of a stagnant capitalist engine that can't fuel economic growth to keep people employed. The difference today versus 100 years ago is that the vast majority of the planet is now a part of this wage-labor system. If this stagnation continues, it's likely to make the employment insecurity, rising inequality, and social movements of the past century look like child's play. The problem is capitalism, not AI or automation.
10: Note that literally a couple hours ago was announced that the UAW came to at least a tentative agreement with GM after uh, announcing, I guess it was yesterday or over the weekend, or a, a Stelant, uh, an agreement with Stellantis. This is on the heels of an agreement with Ford. And it seems like one of the most successful, sort of like, um, strikes. Union demands in modern history, uh, you know, maybe at least in the past 50 years, I think maybe for sure in the past 50 years, it seems, uh, 25% pay increase is just sort of like the top line figure, um, over the course of a three or four, uh, five year contract on uh, you know, all the details we're going to get a little bit more, but how much of that type of unionism in particular, Uh, One that is really sort of aggressive and more democratic. I mean, the UAW had a big sort of uh, they were under a consent decree that brought about this administration of Sean fame, which, you know, feels far more democratic, both in structure and processes, but also just in disposition. Like he is uh, much more in tune to the membership. It feels like from the outside than we've seen in the past. How much of that is a, de- a descendant of the Luddite movement?
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, when the Luddites were rising up, one of the reasons they had to rise up—I d- I didn't mention—was that it was illegal to form a union. There were laws on the books called the Combination Acts. So if you, you know, tried to collectively bargain and say, "Hey, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're, we're all agreed on this. We won't work for this much less rate," you could, you could be thrown in prison. Um, So part of the outgrowth of the of the Luddite movement was the was the reform effort uh, by uh, that helped was really spurred by some of the folks that I follow in the book, Gravener Henson, who was a Luddite himself, but also was interested in, you know, pulling the levers of reform. And he really fought to the bitter end and with ultimately some success to get those combination acts repealed. And we saw sort of the beginnings of the, of the union movement, um, take, take rise, but there's a really, really good lesson from the Luddites in in that, you know, some being militant can work, you know, you don't need to actually smash machines, but, The the industrialists and the sort of the elites of the day were terrified of the Luddites. A lot of them gave in and offered demands um, because they had they had power and they were popular. And, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, as you mentioned, with with Sean Fain and the the previous uh, sort of leadership of, of, of some of our unions had had not wanted to you know mix it up too much they had not wanted to push against the the companies there had been it had gotten pretty slack so i think seeing these sort of more i mean it's not it's not militant but it's a lot more confrontational it's a lot more sort of uh you know they're, they're they're leaning into their power a lot more and i would also point out you know one of the big things was that the companies were trying to say, like, well, you know, uh, we have new technologies, right? We're, we're going to be working with batteries and electric cars, and that's not as hard to produce, so we need to pay you less. And one of the things the union did was stand up and say, absolutely not. This is still labor. This is still uh, this is this is still very labor intensive and skilled work. Just because it's a new technology, does not give you the right to to say it. it you know that, that you should be paid less or take more work off the table. Same thing with the WGA. I would say. That that's another modern example of a very successful luddite tinged uh, strike because they saw the studios saying that well we want to be able to use AI to write scripts mm, and okay. uh, and you know and, and and then you can you know maybe we'll let you rewrite them for a lesser fee and they drew a red line and I argue uh, and I think I did argue in one of my columns that yeah, this that's luddism in the modern day you don't need a hammer you just need to reject what you know is going to be an exploitative use of technology because they knew. They knew the studios were not going to like write a whole movie with AI. They were just going to write a blueprint, bring it to them and say, okay, well you can get a rewrite fee for this, but we'll own the rights. You don't get residuals. You don't get all this. And it was mostly a way to try to break labor power, to try to degrade uh, conditions. And they drew that red line in the WGA. And they said, no, they said, absolutely not. If somebody's going to use AI, we're going to have control over how it's going to be used. The studio can't do it. Uh, We'll make that decision. And kind of, amazingly they won that they won that right to sort of control that part of the labor process so that's a huge victory and i think one that you know is extremely inspiring because we're going to see a wave of these fights coming down
10: do you think that the legacy of the luddites or the lessons that come out of there are are that that tactic of militancy that they had or was it the did they represent a um a new way of 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 understanding of the benefits slash increase in productivity and who gets who gets a piece of that who shares in that the uh, so-called benefit if it's if the if, if the sharing of that benefit goes to you know all the the parties the constituencies involved in that factory or whatever it is that production line or just one narrow, um, uh, w- one narrow beneficiary, or, or is it
1: both? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more the latter. I think it's saying it is, in fact, like it, you should be encouraged uh, to question how technology is going to be used in your workplace, in your life, in your in your daily routine. Like, is it who is who is a given technology going to serve? Is it going to serve you the worker? Or is it going to serve your boss at your expense? And it's giving I think, people license again, especially this is really important in this era where for so long, we've been taught that progress is equal to technology. It's Silicon Valley is the bringer of all of these, you know, great technological gifts and, you know, to question or to resist them is, 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 was unthinkable for so long. I mean, we've seen some of that change with the tech clash and, and, and so forth, but there's still a lot of people who are very resistant to even say like, well, wait a minute, like this seems like a, this seems like an awfully raw deal. And we're seeing that, I think, with thanks to the writers and to a a number of the other sort of uh, folks who are pushing back on this right now, we're seeing that facade start to crack. So I think the Luddites have given us a good example and an important example to, to look at the way that it's being deployed in society or even in our specific workplaces and to question it. And it's okay to question it, it's okay to be a Luddite. And in fact, there's great power in being a Luddite.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Shift laying out an overview of who the Luddites were. Left Reckoning discussed the middle ground between peaceful and violent protest. TRT World explained some of the potential dangers of AI. Jay Stoobes on TikTok described the cultural dystopia of AI video generation. Factually discussed how government is attempting to regulate tech. Torres looked at the problem of capitalism and AI, and the Majority Report discussed the Luddites as a labor movement. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Factually discussing the process of setting up regulation for AI.
8: I think that the U.S. and other countries similarly need a central agency or a cabinet level position or something like that. You know, a, a secretary of AI with supporting infrastructure whose full-time job it is to look at all the ramifications of this, because they are so vast.
0: Mm -hmm. And Alice Capel looked at who benefits from big tech and who can opt out.
7: What
9: seems problematic to me is the reward system we have built around those technologies that is fed by the ideology of constant progress, but also by our economic system, to the point where it has become quite hard to define what progress really is.
0: To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at slash support or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now, to wrap up, I have an excerpt from a New Yorker piece on Luddites and the book Blood in the Machine, the end of which may repeat some things that have already been said, but really sum things up pretty well. "...the tragedy of the Luddites is not the fact that they failed to stop industrialization so much as the way in which they failed. In the end, Parliament sided decisively with the entrepreneurs." Blood in the Machine suggests that although the forces of mechanization can feel beyond our control, the way society responds to such changes is not. Regulation of the textile industry could have protected the Luddite workers before they resorted to destruction." In the era of AI, we have another opportunity to decide whether automation will create advantages for all, or whether its benefits will flow only to the business owners and investors looking to reduce their payrolls. One 1812 letter from the Luddites described their mission as fighting against, quote, all machinery hurtful to commonality. That remains a strong standard by which to judge technological gains, end quote. So fundamentally, this fork in the road we are standing in front of is about who the government or society more broadly is going to back. And I must say, it's an interesting time to try to guess what the government might do in this area, given that the right seems to be leaning, you know, even if only slightly a bit anti-corporate these days, you know, not for the same reasons that I am or you might be, but This could be one of those cases where we get back to the world of politics making strange bedfellows. You know, we've actually been so hyperpolarized for so long now that that doesn't happen much anymore. But the efforts to rein in or break up big tech could be one of the first big ones in a while. Uh, The second thing I want to highlight is the conclusion drawn in an episode of a show called Things Fell Apart that tries to trace the origins of our current culture wars. In the episode about managing online speech, or maybe our tendency to not think we need to manage online speech until really, really forced to, they talk about the first time anyone was ever shamed for something they posted online. Back during the proto-internet, an anti-Semitic joke was posted, and it sparked a debate about whether to moderate such things or just let it run free. Initially, after much deliberation, it was decided that it was important to do some sort of content moderation for the sake of a healthy online discourse. However that stance was immediately attacked from a more libertarian perspective that would ultimately win out and set the tone for Silicon Valley.
11: John McCarthy was horrified at the thought of speech codes becoming the norm online. So he published a ferocious reposte to the ban, calling John Sack an underling who had spent those weeks not deliberating, but gurgling He launched an online petition, too, one of the very first in internet history, gathering a hundred signatures from faculty. Then, as now, the power of the online petition was formidable. The ban on Brad's joke page was quickly reversed. John McCarthy's winning argument, John Sack says, had boiled down to...
6: We're really exploring the leading edge of computing here. Let's keep exploring it. Don't try and cut it off we need to discover the boundaries of free speech by essentially running into them or crossing them.
11: And that's the internet we have all lived in for the decades that followed. A libertarian engineer's utopia where free speech thrived unencumbered with no regard for the dangers it might cause society. And by dangers, I mean not only offensive speech, but fake news, too. And because unencumbered free speech leads to conflict, which keeps people online longer than Harmony does, it's a profitable ideology for the tech companies. It's epitomised best by how Twitter's UK general manager described the site in 2012 as the free speech wing of the free speech party.
6: The interesting thing about Twitter is it's sort of uh, Silicon Valley native, so maybe it all does tie back to the libertarian bent in the engineering culture.
0: Now, maybe it's obvious, but I play this because I see it as another inflection point in the evolution of the relationship between technology and society. So it's clear that these kinds of moments are really important to think through with a long view in mind. What I would argue is that to side with the capitalists and big tech during this AI inflection point, you know, essentially co-signing the idea that AI can and will replace massive numbers of jobs and the benefits of those advances should go exclusively to the capitalist class, will ultimately bring about a destructive wealth stratification that really only has a chance of bringing mass misery. However... There's also a left-wing socialist vision of a techno-future of full automation, where the fruits of those advances are shared across society, and people are freed from long hours at bullshit jobs, maybe only a handful of hours a day, and only a couple or a few days a week would even be spent working, leaving people free to live their non-work lives to the fullest— That is a possibility, certainly better than the alternative, but it does also come with the danger of taking work away from millions of people who derive their inner sense of purpose from the work they do, leading to a massive mental health crisis, even if their economic needs are taken care of. Not to mention the way that AI is tending to tackle art as well. Some neo-Luddites hasten to remind us that Much aside from work, the creation of art is also one of the greatest sources of meaning for people, and if AI sort of swamps the art scene as well, then that could have similar effects as taking away people's work. So it really strikes me as a choice between economic hyper-stratification and economic abundance for all but with the danger of there being too little of what gives life purpose to people— Now, of course, given that stress levels are at all-time highs brought about by overwork and a general sense of time poverty, I suppose bringing down work hours and days should start to create improvements for people before it goes too far in the other direction, but all of these things are concerns to keep our eye on. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991, or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts. Together, Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and a bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them today by signing up at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and very often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community, where you can also continue the discussion.